Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg, News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. On the show today, all the way from New York, U.S. producer Simon Adler tells me about his green life. And we've heard that fashion contributes a whopping 10% of global emissions causing climate change. But today we'll find out what happens to all those clothes when we are done with them. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at downtoearth@newstalk.com. It's time to head down to earth, beginning with our weekly news roundup. Yes, it's the last hurrah for this season of our regular feature, The Weekly Planet, with Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. Every week, Craig and I have covered a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world to keep you in the know. And Craig is back for one more news roundup. Hi, Craig. Hi, Cara. Good to be joining you again. Good to have you back. Last Friday was the 52nd annual Earth Day celebration, and it was marked around the world by both educational events and and protests. But undoubtedly, I think the most tragic and shocking of these was the death of a 50-year-old climate activist, Wynne Bruce, who set himself on fire outside of the U.S. Supreme Court. This was unbelievable to me, Craig. I don't know how how you felt about this news. Yeah, this is a really tragic story, Cara. Uh, This U.S. climate activist set himself on fire outside the U.S. Supreme Court building in Washington on Earth Day last Friday at about 6.30 in the evening. And he was uh, airlifted to hospital shortly after, uh, but sadly died as a result of his uh, burns. Um, He'd made a comment on a Facebook page adding uh, this date of the 22nd of April and a fire emoji to it. And uh, he was known to be very concerned about climate change. The protest was about uh, uh, climate change. And his comment on Facebook was in response to a climate change story. So friends are kind of quite clear that this was, uh, as they put it, an act of compassion to bring attention to the climate crisis. Uh, It's obviously a very, very tragic story. Um, I hate to say, I mean, I I actually, I know someone that once said that they were thinking of doing this as a protester. And I think others have done it before. And it is just, um, obviously, it's just incredibly sad. But And it just shows that so many people now feel sort of entire, really desperate about what's happening with the climate emergency. And desperate is not getting the attention and the action that is required. Yeah, he's not the first uh, to, to do this, actually, in relation to the climate issue. In 2018, David Bucknell, who was a prominent gay rights lawyer and environmental advocate, actually did the same thing in Prospect Park in New York. And and he was quoted at the time as saying, most humans on the planet now breathe air made of unhealthy fossil fuels and many die early deaths as a result. My early death by fossil fuel reflects what we are doing to ourselves, which is is just shocking. I mean, we we've seen a few other people do this in America in result in uh, in response to the Vietnam War and to issues in Yemen. But to have two men now do this in relation to climate change is is really heartbreaking. And and I think uh, the the the. The story going around is that when Bruce was doing this at the time, because the U.S. Supreme Court was deliberating on a really important environmental case that could restrict or eliminate the Environmental Protection Agency's authority to control pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. So this is a very real issue that that they think he was he was responding to this this case going on in the Supreme Court. 
Yes, that's right. Um, I mean, we have to say there were many other protests that took place around the world last uh, Friday on Earth Day. There was a big blockade by Extinction Rebellion members at the printing works for major US newspapers, including the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, in a protest against media coverage on climate change. And uh, there were 15 activists arrested. And there were rallies you know, right across the US and around the world, including demonstrations against uh, fossil fuels and uh, Russian fossil fuels in particular in Europe. Um, so we saw many sort of uh, protests happening and, you know, it does become that kind of running cry each year as Earth Day. Um, I mean, I think Earth Day is sort of something that was uh, big in the US uh, for a long time before it became big and started to become big in Europe and around the world. But it, it does seem to be growing each year. It becomes more of a uh, focus on it. Uh, the World Health Organization called for fossil fuels to stay in the ground. I think that was quite significant. I, I'd not heard the World Health Organization say that before, to uh, prevent air pollution, uh, as it tweeted on Earth Day as well. So I think that's a welcome tweet from the World Health Organization. So we, we do see this kind of momentum building of, of protest. But I mean, as we've spoken before on the weekly planet, Karma, it's just really hard to kind of get cut through at the moment with so many other things happening in the world. Um, you know, does any of this sort of add up to enough to bring that attention on that is needed from policymakers to actually scale up the level of action that, that is commensurate with the scale of the threat? And, and sadly, I don't think we're seeing that. Yeah, Al Jazeera covered a number of the protests going on on Earth Day and USA Today shared a, a lot of photos from around the world of different Earth Day protests. But I thought one of them that was interesting was that uh, Warsaw-based climate activists uh, f- from the Fridays for Future movement actually said that they're moving away from this idea of massive street protests, that, that actually they think that that time has passed where that was capturing public attention and they're moving to much more strategic uh, demonstrations with very specific asks. So we saw examples of a flotilla of boats of fishermen and activists in the Philippines that were protesting the construction of another uh, liquefied natural gas terminal. And and my favorite, actually my personal favorite of the protest signs that I saw was an environmental activist uh, in Bangkok, Thailand, holding up a sign that said, this is not what we meant by a hot girl summer, which of course I can relate to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it, I, I, I always like to see those sort of protest tactics evolving. I think that's so important. I mean, we've spoken before, it is so important to try to keep things fresh. I think the Fridays for, for the Future movement has been one that has has been done very well in doing that, keeping it kind of fresh. And I, and I think these kind of tactics have been much more focused, maybe smaller protests, but really focused on particular issues, I think is probably the way to go. I think that makes a lot of sense because actually sometimes, you know, if, the, if, if you're very specific about the asks from a protest and you're very specific about the target of those, then I think you're more likely to get the kind of progress that we need. But, um, you know, I sort of do understand the huge frustration that so many people feel at the moment about just us just not seeing the level of political action uh, that is needed to tackle this crisis. Yeah. So speaking of hot girl summers, the next story you actually brought to our attention is related to a heat wave that's happening in India right now. And it's it's threatening not only people's lives, but also a crucial wheat harvest that the whole world was really depending on because uh, the Ukraine's wheat production is obviously decreasing as a result of the conflict. And so India was going to fill that gap. But it looks like that heat wave is going to make that very difficult. What What have you heard about that? Yeah, well, I thought it was important to talk about this. It's it's not received as much attention as I should do. India, obviously, a country of uh, a billion people, and uh, they are facing really extreme heat wave at the moment. Uh, it's predicted that in the next week or so, 
they will experience temperatures in the high to mid 40s degrees centigrade. Uh, in March itself was record breaking with temperatures of 33.1 degrees uh, centigrade. But of course, this is a country with high humidity, particularly at this sort of time of year, and 32 degrees can, can feel like 38 degrees. And, you know, we, we've talked on the weekly panel all the time about climate change in the sort of, in the broad sense, Cara, but actually, uh, certainly India is a country where I think the specifics of it just get painful to listen to. I mean, I've, uh, I've spent a lot of time in India earlier in my career. Um, I was doing a lot of work there actually on tigers and, and issues like uh, that and on, on illegal wildlife trade issues uh, back in uh, around 20, 25 years ago. And I got to know the country really well. It's a, it's a beautiful country, amazing kind of people. But when I read this story about these kind of temperatures, I just think how difficult will it will be for the hundreds of millions of uh, particularly rural poor people in, in India, where there will be no respite to this. You know, these kind of temperatures, uh, feeling like 38 degrees or in the high, in the mid to high 40s, you know, all day, every day, pretty much, even not much respite at night. And, you know, nowhere to go with kind of air conditioning or, or, or better cooling to try and get out of those temperatures. It makes it incredibly difficult to work outside, uh, uh, maybe on farms or in uh, or labouring in other kind of ways. And that's the reality of climate change that's being experienced here. You know, it is so often people kind of think about polar bears or something, and we, we do care about polar bears, but actually, the, it actually it's about, of course, millions of people, many of them dying because of the extreme heat uh, and really suffering. And there will be excess deaths as a result of uh, these heat waves in India. Of course, then that's on top of COVID, which has been a huge problem in India as well. And, and this is the thing, it's when you see these kind of, tragedies coming together, these tensions, these stresses coming together and reinforce each other, that's when it causes so much misery uh, for people. And I, th I think it just brings it home, uh, just uh, sadly what the future will look like with uh, climate change, but particularly for the poorest people in the world that will suffer most. So coming back to, to our own home, we have our own environmental problem in the news this week too, as the Financial Times is reporting that Europe faces a critical shortage of metals needed for clean energy. I think we've heard about this every time we mention electric vehicles. People say, oh, but you need all these precious rare earth metals. And, and we might even hear the same thing if we had a, a solar revolution like we hope to. But, but what What's the story here, Craig, with metals and, and our need for them to move to clean energy? Yes, well, I mean, I think it is important to talk about because if we, uh, you know, clearly we know that we need to create a lot of infrastructure to, provi to provide for the zero carbon economy, uh, to build those sort of solar panels, those wind turbines and batteries, of course. Uh, and there is indicated that there's going to be supply changes around this. I mean, last year, the International Energy Agency warned of that and said that there was difficulty about getting enough metals. Um, in this last week, a new study was published by Euromatox, uh, and uh, it's an industry group, I should caution, that <laughs> represents some of the region's biggest metal producers, including Glencore and Rio Tinto. So we might think they might have ulterior motives. But they are saying that, you know, actually there's a particular crunch in the next 15 years. Uh, they're confident, uh, and this is the good news, I think, that up to 75% of uh, the European Union's uh, clean energy metal requirements could eventually be met through local recycling, assuming there's enough investment. Um, but it's the next 15 years that there will be a real crunch. And they say Europe will require 35 times more lithium, 
seven to 26 times the amount of rare earth metals in 2050 compared to what it is today. Uh, and an increase of 35% on the amount of copper that we currently demand and a 100% increase in the amount of nickel that's required. So of course, this industry group says there's three options. They say they'd like to develop more mines here in Europe. That's one. <laughs> they say that they would like to open new refineries here in Europe. But of course, that takes uh, a lot of energy as well. And they would like to co-invest in financing new mining projects around the world with long-term supply agreements to make sure that Europe can source those. I thought it was kind of interesting that they didn't put the, ov to me, the obvious fourth option, the better option is to move much faster on that recycling effort <laughs> that they themselves say will eventually provide 75% of our clean energy uh, measure requirements. So I thought it was quite funny that their immediate answer is we've just got to dig more holes in the ground, but perhaps that's because of who they were. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, I do think it highlights there clearly is an issue here uh, that we need to look at to make sure that we don't run out of the raw, raw materials needed for the clean energy revolution. Yeah, I think they were highlighting a really important problem that we need an urgent conversation about how we're going to get the metals for, for all of these plans we have for renewable energy and moving to electric vehicles. But you're right that none of the options they gave were, were any good. And in fact, they said we should look toward China, who are going around the world making agreements with countries in Africa to do more extractive uh, you know, industrial activities so that China can s supply their needs. But there was nothing even about, not only about recycling, but even the, the research and development drive that's happening now around looking for synthetic alternatives for some of these metals, which I know that the car manufacturers are really pushing for this in terms of being able to get enough metals for their electric vehicle batteries. So you're right. I mean, we should take industry reports with a with an air of caution, but I think highlighting the need to actually make plans for this and the need to start investing in recycling facilities is really, really important. And we do need to start talking about that beyond just the industry groups. We do, but I think you make a really important point about, you know, I would say we need much more disruptive innovation in this whole kind of area. You know, there is at the moment around this debate a kind of assumption that we're just going to need more of the batteries that we have today, and therefore we're going to need just as much, you know, we need all this extra lithium and so on. But, you know, there's amazing sort of innovation happening in the world of batteries. I mean, there's, there's kind of what I would say bonkers things going on in kind of thinking about biological batteries for the future and actually even using DNA, synthetic DNA to sort of store energy. I mean, it just sounds completely mad. But that's the kind of work that's happening in the labs. And I think it's kind of I find it hard to believe that actually in 50 years time uh, that, that we will necessarily be relying on batteries that use lithium. I think they will find alternative sources. So, I mean, the other option that I would want the world to look at is, uh, yes, massively scale up that recycling so we can get as many of our precious metals from reusing recycling metals that have been used before, but actually also really embrace disruptive innovation around this. I, I was told recently about um, wind turbines, for example, that are made from bamboo composite, can you believe? I mean, it just sounds mad. Um, but, uh, you know, actually, there are so many opportunities around uh, sort of material innovation, new materials uh, in particular, that I could think could make a real difference here. And I would like to see us try and move much faster on that as well. But clearly, there is an issue here. Uh, we need to be thinking about where we source all these kind of materials that are needed. 
for uh, a more sustainable future. And that's all part of the story. And it's important to be thinking about it. Well, I think you and I love having chats about disruptive innovation. So we might have to keep chatting off air at the end of this season. My thanks, Craig Bennett, to all of your tireless work in keeping us up to date in the news over the last 12 weeks. Not at all, Kyle. It's been excellent fun. And and, uh, speak to you again soon. Absolutely. After the break, we'll find out what happens to our clothes when we are done with them. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better future for all. So there's just constant newness being flung at everybody. Um, and I think the problem with that is, is that there just creates this huge amount of waste. You know, this kind of wear once culture where you wear something once and it either stays in your wardrobe or you bin it and you don't know where that's going to end up. You're listening to Down to Earth on News Talk, and that was Rachel Hennessy, owner of the fashion rental company Happy Days, speaking on News Talk Breakfast earlier this week about the environmental impacts of fast fashion. In season one on Down to Earth, we actually learned how the manufacturing of our clothes contributes to 10% of greenhouse gas emissions globally. But what happens to the clothes when we're done? Here to shed light on this, I'm joined by Ali Moore of Love Not Landfill, based in the UK, and Mark Sweeney, District Retail Manager for Oxfam Ireland. Hi, Ali and Mark. Hi. Ali, hi. I was surprised to read on the Love Not Landfill website that over half of British adults surveyed were actually unaware of the environmental impact of their clothes. So what are some of the most serious impacts you think they should be aware of? I think uh, the most serious impacts, I think, are just the, the fact that we are producing so many clothes globally and so many of them end up going to landfill or being burnt. Um, and that creates a kind of massive carbon footprint. So, you know, the greenhouse gas emissions associated with making like growing the fibers or making the fibers in the first place making the clothes distributing them around the world selling them running shops uh people wearing them once as we heard from a your your earlier contributor and then chucking them away it, it's it's just an extraordinary volume of stuff in the world creating like contributing to the climate emergency that we're living in and you know i i heard um uh, Patrick Grant from the Great British Sewing Bee um, saying last year that there were six, that there was enough clothing already in the world to clothe six generations of people. So like there's so many clothes and all of that comes with a price. Yeah. And I've heard that the UK in particular is one of the worst offenders. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And compared to other EU countries, we are we are the biggest consumer of fast fashion and we're spending um, around 3% more every year on clothes, despite everything, despite the cost of living crisis, despite, you know, the fact that that, that times are getting tough. We're still spending 3% more every year on our fashion habits in the UK. Wow. So, Mark, we, we know about the greenhouse gas emissions that are coming from the manufacturing of clothing and even the disposal, the carbon footprint of clothing. What do you think are the implications in terms of the the garment workers in countries where these clothes are being manufactured? I know that would be a, a key issue for for charities like Oxfam. I mean, obviously, the, the, these this fast fashion, these clothing, they're they're obviously produced for as 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 Ali said, there people wear them once because the quality of them isn't very good, and the reason I suppose is is because they're being mass produced, and the conditions in those countries. Um, are, are are terrible and people aren't being paid fair wages. And I think that's an impact that people gloss over. I think you can see the environmental impact. You know, a lot of people are aware of that. I think less people are aware of how those clothes are produced 
um, and you know what what effect that has on a community. It's even as simple as when when textile has been produced, especially denim, the redirection of water to produce denim, um, and and how that affects villages uh, where where people you know depend on water, and, and that redirection of water to to produce textiles in in, in countries has a massive effect on on communities. Ali was showing how in the UK they've they've measured just how big an impact these these purchasing um, issues are on the global supply chain and on environmental issues. Any idea how the purchasing purchasing habits here in Ireland stack up? I, I I'm not quite sure. Ali may have more insight into it. I know there has been quite a shift, but fast fashion is is still very popular. You have brands that advertise on TV during every popular program all over bus stops, all over every, every advertising avenue that there is. So they've become part of the culture and it's very easy to pop onto that website and go, that's a nice top. When it arrives, that's not a nice top. And it either ends up in a bin or thankfully sometimes it ends up coming into a charity shop. Mm-hmm. Ali, you were you were mentioning there how sometimes people are are not even wearing the clothes that they're they're buying. And whereas Mark was maybe saying that this has to do with the the quality of the clothes deteriorating. What are you finding? Is this because we're our clothes just aren't made as well, or is it something else around fashion? I think there's a whole host of um reasons. It's quite a complicated picture. I think there is um quite a lot of poor quality clothing out there which doesn't last for long but I also just don't think that we have the same attitudes to clothing anymore and I think that we can make clothes last longer if we want to um we run a regular an, an, an annual thing called London Repair Week through one of our other campaigns um our London Recycles campaign and um encourage people to learn some basic repair skills or learn about where the local repair businesses are to get things repaired so there's a whole issue around us wanting to keep our clothes going for longer and to wear them repeatedly and to have the skills to be able to do that to to sew to repair to upcycle uh, maybe even just to accessorize things kind of restyle them and wear them differently and just kind of get a different sense of fun out of them um, and I think that's got a lot to do with it there are durable clothing there, there is durable clothing out there even from some of the fast fashion chains you can buy some good quality durable clothing and I know that some of them are starting to look at durability as a as something they really really want to work on um, so you know it's, it's not as straightforward a picture um, but there are certain behavioral trends amongst different age groups so younger people like the 16 to 24 year olds that we try and talk to yeah I mean that there's a there's a, a skills gap there and an understanding gap I think as well yeah I'm actually taking a sewing boot camp in a couple of weeks for that that same reason but I one of the reasons I really prefer buying secondhand clothes is because of the durability issue because I figure if it's managed to last as long as getting into a charity shop it must be a, a durable product to last that long but Mark uh, an yeah, Oxfam we, we, study we, we, have you found this that that a lot of people are donating new yeah. clothing and everything to Oxfam well, we, we, we find that uh, that demographic that Ali just mentioned, especially in, in Ireland, I can't speak for the UK, there, there actually has been a shift where people are looking and, and as, as, as strange as it sounds, they're looking for vintage clothing and vintage clothing now is anything pre-2000. So, you know, there is that that shift because people realise, there's two reasons, I suppose, where, where the younger demographic will shop or a charity shop is, one is, yes, quality, but two is, is the uniqueness of what they find. 
So I think we've we found there's a bit of a shift, not enough yet, but there has been a shift to, towards that younger demographic shopping in the charity shop. Yeah, in my own home. Yeah, we see that in London as well. There's a there's a couple of charity shops in London now who are getting quite well known for how well they curate their collections. Mm-hmm. So they're really sifting through the clothes that they're collecting and they're putting really, really targeted collections into the shops in the different locations that they are. And they they know who they're selling to so well. And I'm sure that Mark, in your shops, you're, you're exactly the same, that you really know your target audience and you're choosing those clothes to, to sell to them directly. I'm, I'm really curious, and maybe Mark, you'll you'll shed some light on this. In my own hometown of Bray, uh, there's a local hotel that's housing Ukrainian families, and they've actually been so overrun with clothing donations, and a lot of them not in good condition, not in wearable condition, that they've actually put a sign on the front door saying no clothing donations. And they've been criticized in the media for this as being not generous to the Ukrainians and not allowing people to donate. But the truth is, they are literally drowning in clothing. Are you finding that you're actually getting too much clothing donation and maybe not in in good enough quality to sell on? I suppose it's 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 a different answer. I'll give you. I'm I'm involved in in the, the waste directive, the EU waste directive as well for 2025, where there has to be a solution for textile waste. And I think it it starts with education for a consumer or for a donor. Um, where textile, not all textile donations are good textile donations. Unfortunately, there are clothing, and I know Ali has said about repair. There are some clothing that we get that are soiled, damaged beyond repair. Uh, and it, it is a real problem. And I think we're in Ireland where we we educated the public on how to recycle, uh, you know, going back. And it was a really good program. And, you know, what goes into recycling and what doesn't go into recycling. There is a piece that we have to work on there in terms of how clothing is looked at. And just because a charity shop takes clothing or just because uh, there's an appeal for for Ukrainian families who need clothing, I think people have to understand that, you know, when, when a charity shop appeals for donations and when, you know, other events appeal for donations, we're looking for good quality clothing. Um, you know, it's it's not just a place to come and, you know, dump clothing. Uh, I think over the years, a lot of the charity shops, and I would be involved in the Irish Charity Shop Association as well, have, you know, built up relationships with donors and, and people to say, yes, look, we'll take your clothing, but it must be, you know, something that we can sell because otherwise we have to manage how that is dealt with then. Um, And I suppose maybe people are saying, oh, this is an opportunity to clear out my wardrobe and get rid of everything that I have. And and maybe some of them aren't in good condition. But as I said, generally there has been a shift, but unfortunately you will still get a a good volume of, of very damaged or soiled clothing. So my burning question is what actually happens to the clothes that you can't sell on or, or donate and, and that isn't in good enough condition to wear? I suppose I, I'll, I'll answer first and then Ali might have more insight from, from the UK's point of view. But uh, we deal with textile recyclers. So when I, I, they'll give you the, the quick overview, if we get a bag of clothing into our shops, it's, it's taken into our back room, it's sorted straight away. And generally we will rough sort it into summer or winter. So we know what season to sell it in. Um, and then if there's vintage, we'll pull vintage out. Um, and then uh, I suppose once that's done, whatever remains that's you know unsellable uh, or unrepairable, we have some fantastic volunteers who will take the time to repair something that is slightly damaged. So if it's worth repairing and, and worth the resale value, they will bring it home with them and they'll repair it. And it's fantastic to see. But the things that are soiled, damaged, just you know worn beyond sale, they go into recycling and we have we have a partner that you know we deal with 
um, in Ireland uh, and they will micro sort down through the clothing then again uh, and they will work on various different projects with that clothing. Some Sometimes they resell clothing that they can resell, uh, be it lower quality, quality clothing or whatever, uh, and then they will break it down into further that they will work with companies who produce insulation for car vehicles and, and different things. So some of the textile can be broke down and reused. There's not enough of that happening, unfortunately, in the world, full stop. Uh, and I know technology has come on massively where that is becoming a real thing, but it's it's pure textiles that can be recycled, not not uh, not not um, multiple fabric clothing. But it's it's you know that's the that's the I suppose the general overview of a car. Ali, I've heard some of that clothing is actually sent to countries in Africa, and and it's damaging the indigenous textile industries there. Is that something that you you're seeing? Um, well. Look, around 50% of clothes uh, donated or, or kind of sent for reuse and recycling by people in the UK get given to charity shops, but only 30% of those actually get sold through charity shops. 60% um, of, the, of the clothes that, um, that is collected for reuse and recycling in the UK goes to foreign, to, to foreign markets, gets exported overseas, and whether that's to African markets or to um, Eastern European, or there are other markets out there that um, regularly receive used clothing from, from the UK and other European countries. So um, it, it definitely goes out there. Um, whether it damages um, local, local markets, local industries, um, is not something that I can give much insight on. I know that there are people looking at that and, and ways in which it can be done better. But there are certainly people, in, you know, in those in those countries who are making a living out of selling the used clothing. Yeah. Um, so it's not, it's, again, it's a complex picture. These things are never just one thing, are they? Um, but overall, only 5% of clothing that's donated for reuse and recycling in the UK actually ends up going to waste, i.e. being burnt or landfilled. So it's still a large volume. Um, much more of it goes into sort of black bin bags, into the rubbish bin. Um, and that does that creates you know much bigger landfill, but um, lots of it in in the UK also gets shredded and used for industrial insulation and filling and lining. It gets cut up for cleaning industrial cleaning cloths. Um, so you know if, if only five percent of what we donate is actually going to waste in the end, I think that's that's not a bad figure. Mark, well, what would it's, Oxfam? It's quite Ireland a big like figure in Ireland, though. There, there's 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 over eighty thousand tons of textile going into domestic waste in Ireland. So it, it's for Ireland, I suppose, like UK is, is such a big market and there are so many more charity shops in the UK. But I suppose when you come to Ireland, it's a little bit different because there are a limited amount of, of charity shops. There's a lot. There's 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 nearly, well, we always say as, as a legitimate charity shop, there's there's nearly 500 in, in Ireland. But, it, you know, some charities in the UK will have 500 shops, you know, so mm. it's it's um, it is quite a different market over here. And a lot more, I think, ends up in um, domestic waste. And, and that has become right. a real problem here as well. You know, Mark, yeah. what would Oxfam Ireland like to see happen to prevent the kind of negative outcomes that we've talked about in relation to the textile industry? I guess it, it is that education piece and it starts with schools and it starts with young people and it's about it's about people's relationship with clothes. It's like anything. It's people's relationship with food. It's people's relationship with the environment. It, it is your relationship with clothes. And Ali has kind of touched on that. And it's it clo clothing to some people have become this thing where you buy it once, you buy it, wear it once, leave it there. Maybe after a while you clear it out. So I think the attitude towards how we wear our clothes and how we treat our clothes 
it has to change. I think that's the first habit. And then people have to get better. I mean, you don't want to have the same thing in your wardrobe for 10 years because, you know, people like to be different. People like to be unique. So I think what people have to get into that habit is, is using, you know, charity shops as an example to drop in their clothing, you know, donate it, buy something new from a charity shop. Or if you do buy something from a commercial retailer, use it and then donate it. And then to get back into, and there's, look, there's great swap websites. There's, there's lots of different ways people do it. A lot of people sell online themselves now, but there are lots of different things, but it's the attitude towards reusing what we have. As Ali said, we, there's enough clothing in the world for six generations of people. Like that's a lot of clothes and, and all those clothes can be reused. Like I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in wearing something till, till I can't wear it anymore or keeping it and, and, working it and obviously shopping in a charity shop um, and you find some amazing stuff but that attitude towards how we look and view clothing it doesn't always have to be a brand new thing and I think that starts with influencers it starts with fashion designers not trying to push the new thing or push the thing that was cool 10 years ago or 20 years ago it's about all the whole industry has to change how they view clothing and I know a lot of, of retailers have change that mindset but I think for us it's getting people into that circular fashion you know system of you know buying something putting it back into the system in a positive way uh, and buying it back out of that system again you know well, well my thanks to Ali Moore of Love Not Landfill which is an incredible website by the way worth checking out and Mark Sweeney of Oxfam Ireland for helping me make my wardrobe a little more planet friendly in the future up next U.S. journalist Simon Adler will be telling me about his green life down to earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better future for all. I enjoy the act of hunting. Can I tell you why? Could I wrap that up in a real pretty burrito for you to be able to eat and understand and it tastes good? No, but I can tell you that I care about the survival of these species. If we want wildlife to be around for future generations, we have to understand that that wildlife has to have a value. If it doesn't have a value, especially in the continent of Africa, it's going to be gone. A real pretty burrito. I love that line. You just heard an interview by today's guest, Simon Adler, as he followed an American hunter, Corey Knowlton, to Namibia to kill an endangered black rhino. And Simon is actually a senior radio producer for Radiolab all the way from New York City, uh, National Public Radio and WNYC Studios. So I am delighted, Simon, to have you on as my very last My Green Life guest of this season of Down to Earth. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I, I was actually on the edge of my seat listening to that story of the rhino hunter when it aired on National Public Radio. And I believe it took you two years to put that that whole one hour show together. Is that right? Yes, it was a very long process in in large part because uh, uh, Corey Knowlton, the man who uh, who I pro profile and follow throughout the story, uh, just didn't really want to give me an interview for uh, years on end. So uh, essentially, over the course of a year, I would send him a letter or an email or a text message once a week saying like, hey, Corey, I'm still here. I'd still really love to talk to you about this. Uh, do you mind sitting down to chat? And eventually, uh, I, I guess I just wore him down and he was willing to talk to me. Uh, and from there, we sort of built a relationship that led to me yeah, following him to Namibia to 
to take down this uh, this black rhino. It's, it's kind of understandable why he didn't want an interview because this was a man who paid $350,000 at a hunting conference in America for the privilege of killing a black rhino in Namibia, an endangered species. And when he won this auction, he got like this horrific hate mail and death threats, like really horrible things were sent to him. Is that right? Just terrible. Yeah. And uh, yeah, if, I, I'd rather not go into specifics. Uh, and I, we probably can't hear on the radio. But yeah, death threats, uh, threats against his family. And a lot of the coverage that was going on around uh, th- this hunting permit that, that he had bought at this auction was sort of sensational uh, and wasn't really looking particularly deeply into this Namibian program it was a part of, et cetera. So uh, yeah, I totally understand his hesitancy to talk to me, uh, particularly with public radio in America's uh, left-leaning track record. But uh, I'm, I'm glad we did talk and I thought like uh, th- there was a lot of mutual respect by the end of our time together. Yeah, so what I, what I loved about that show and the reason I wanted to bring you on to our show, which is very much an environmental show, is, is your colleague, I think, introduced it best when she uh, said recently that, that this whole show really broke her brain. Uh, and I found it too a bit of a, a head melter because there was this dichotomy of this this man who was off killing a black rhino, which, of course, conservationists were horrified by, or animal rights activists, and at the same time, this argument that actually this was really uh, good for conservation and that this was the only way to allow black rhinos to thrive. And at the end of it, I didn't really have an answer, but I'm wondering, what's your answer coming out of that whole experience? What's your view on the idea of hunting these endangered species in Africa? Right. Well, it's a it's a paradox. The idea that uh, the only way to save a species is to kill some of it, uh, and where I land is it's an incredibly case by case basis. What you had here in Namibia with this hunting permit that uh, Corey Knowlton bought uh, was a World Wildlife Federation approved program where essentially uh, I think it was five a year. Uh, five of these permits were sold a year. And they were permits for specific animals, specific black rhinos, males who were uh, beyond breeding age. And in fact, in their old age had become particularly aggressive and were potentially killing younger members of, uh, of the species. Uh, and so in this case, and I can only speak uh, in this moment to this Namibian black rhino uh, case, but in this case, it, it, it's pretty hard to argue that, that it is not a benefit to conservation. This thing is raising hundreds of thousands of dollars a year that then are being pumped directly into rhino conservation. Now, uh, I think as you hear in the piece, that's not all uh, trophy hunting. Uh, there, there, there's, it's a wide spectrum, but when done properly and when part of sort of a well thought out uh, conservation strategy, it can be a piece of the puzzle. Uh, which again, it is hard to wrap one's mind around and is incredibly counterintuitive. Uh, but in this case, it, it seems to be it seems to be beneficial. Yeah, it was absolutely fascinating. One of the best pieces of radio I've actually listened to. But you don't oh, well, just make, you. you're very welcome. You don't just make radio about conservation and hunting. You've actually spent the past year of your life making an entire series about the legacy of the cassette tape in a show called Mixtape, which to me sounded like a very strange premise to make a whole series <laughs> about. But I listened to some of it and it gave me a whole new appreciation for my Sony Walkman. I know I'm older than you and I still have my old yellow Sony Walkman. (laughs) 
Uh, but now we're living in this world you. where audio is almost entirely digital. And to me as an environmentalist, that seems like like a good thing because we're getting away from plastic cassettes and CDs and, and stuff. But do you feel that we're missing out by not having audio in that kind of tangible format anymore, given all you learned about the, the value of a cassette tape? Yeah, good question. Uh, I sort of find it a fascinating little artifact, and uh, I get appreciation out of collecting them these days. Do I think the the loss of the physicality is is uh, is a loss? I no, I'm with you. I think uh, less less plastic and less stuff is is better. And interestingly, a lot of uh, sort of the the less tangible qualities that the cassette tape brought into uh, our lives, the sort of rewritability, uh, the remixability, uh, the mobility, all of those uh, qualities have carried through into the digital uh, into the digital audio world that we now inhabit. So no, I, 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 I think it was a great transitional technology and a really important traditional technology that gets a sort of a short shrift, but uh, I, I'm fine. Uh, carrying around my iPhone with my AirPods in. I don't need to have a collection of cassettes in my backpack as I'm moving through the world. Uh, one of the things you, you mentioned in an interview is that the cassette tape is still being used uh, in federal federal prisons. Is that right? That's the only way of sending audio to someone in jail. Yeah, uh, in the States, this is a piece of research we came across. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to have the details at the tip of my finger at the moment, but yeah, in, in a number, I believe it's all federal prisons, but certainly uh, in, in many of them, uh, it is the one way that you are allowed to bring music into the prison. Uh, and I believe it's for safety reasons, the, the thought being that it'd be far easier to fashion some sort of weapon out of a, uh, out of a CD than it is a cassette tape. Uh, but yeah, so the, the, and and they're still in so use strange. all over the place. Actually, really? uh, we we could go down a list like schools. Yeah, because uh, particularly in sort of uh, underfunded uh, school districts in the U.S., they bought all of these uh, like learning cassette tapes back in the '80s and '90s, and they just haven't had the budget to update them yet uh, and get sort of digital versions uh, or sort of CD versions when that came along. And so they're still being used. Uh, yeah, they're all over the so place. So the mixtape is not dead ways. yet. The beloved mixtape. I, I actually it's not dead. No, <laughs> so strange. I I actually read that in addition to it, you had many career goals as a child, which are listed in your bio, and one of them was to be an environmental engineer. So I'm wondering how much interest and engagement do you still have in environmental issues, given that that was something you were obviously attracted to as a child. Right. Yeah. I I I really thought that's what I was going to do for a bit. Uh, I'm actually, I'm working on a on a on a climate change story at the moment, actually. Uh, and what it's looking at is sort of in the, uh, given the lack of movement being made by the federal government here in the United States, uh, what are corporations doing? And oddly, what, uh, what I'm finding is that corporations are making far more rational decisions with, uh, when, it, when it comes to climate change than the federal government here in the United States. So uh, it, it's uh, it's something I've, that I've been exploring. I hopefully the piece will come out in the next several months here. But uh, yeah, it's it's hard to stay uh, it's hard to stay engaged and on top of it because the news is rarely good. So uh, I, I applaud you for 
<laughs> is <laughs> that being in the trenches week after week? Do you think that's a kind of a, a Trumpian effect or the fact that it's a very polarized political system that that corporations are able to move faster than the than the U.S. government? Yeah, it, it seems uh, based on the experts I've talked to or, or folks who think about this for a living. Yeah, it, it's just we're we're in gridlock here in because of the polarization, we still have portions of the country that don't think climate change is real. And you have, uh, you have politicians then who, uh, despite uh, all reports, understanding the science and knowing, in fact, themselves that it is real, uh, sort of playing to, uh, to that political base. So yeah, it's gridlock in the federal government, whereas corporations, uh, they have a bottom line to worry about. Uh, and they have a CEO and a small board who uh, uh, can can stare down that that reality and start acting on it. How, how and, and, confident are you that the U.S. will move to a more sustainable society? Uh, well, it's going to have to, right? Uh, and I, I guess I, I'm an optimist. Uh, I, I think it's going to happen. I also think, hopefully, that we're getting to a place where uh, the economics and sustainability are beginning to align. So as, as one person told me, uh, it's good to have greed on your side. And the moment that sustainability allows for greed, uh, which we're getting there, just look, look, look at the, the fact that like the cheapest way to produce electricity at this point is, is sustainable in many cases. Uh, that electric cars are very fun to drive, that, uh, that uh, gas prices are so high. Um, if once we get that to align more fully, uh, we're going to start to see change. And I think we're getting there. Uh, is it happening fast enough? Has it happened fast enough? Oof. Uh, the beyond my pay grade to answer that question. It kind of goes back to what your your rhino hunter was saying about needing to put a value on a monetary value on the rhino to kind of to to conserve it. It's it's sad that the, that we're there. But we I noticed on Earth Day last week we actually saw protests by Extinction Rebellion in your home state of New York, and they were specifically targeting a newspaper printing facility that publishes uh, you know papers like the New York Times, and and they were pro- protesting poor climate coverage, and that's really an issue that comes up a lot here in Ireland, that there's a lot of complaints about the lack of climate coverage in the media. What's your view on the media coverage of climate in the U.S.? Oh, it, well, yeah, it, it, we're, not, we're not doing enough. And I, I can explain why, why I think that is. I think, I think we're not doing enough because it's just such a hard story to cover. Like, what is, what, what, what is the logic of the news? The logic of the news is it has to be something new that has happened, and it's something that had, an, had a cause and an immediate effect. Uh, look no further than crime coverage. Like, that's why it's all, all over the place. Climate change doesn't function that way. It's this, as you know, glacial-paced catastrophe where uh, there's not the most obvious cause and effect in terms of something you can see right in front of yourself. So it's it's just very, very hard to report on and, and maybe not report on, but make compelling. Like I'll say at, at Radiolab, we've been trying to do climate change stories for years now. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just hard to find a narrative that uh, is interesting to listen to. Uh, in in our medium, because of the the glacial pace and of the problem. In your experience, what does resonate and what does work in terms of what you cover around climate? Oof. Well, what I'm trying to do here is just find some novel approach and some way that people aren't thinking about it. So I 
that's not a very good answer. But, but yeah, I don't know. F find sort of a backdoor in. That that's what I'm trying to do here by looking at corporations. But presumably, Rhino Hunter got a lot of attention, did it? That's true. It did. And again, here that that's one where we have uh, an individual who's making a claim that on its face seems sort of ludicrous, uh, and yet at the end, you as the listener are left, uh, hopefully, a lot less certain about the opinion you had <laughs> when, when you started the piece. So uh, it, 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 it works well in that way. I like that, that the goal is actually to, to make you less certain by the end of listening to a piece than more certain about your opinion. Maybe that's what we should all be doing with our, our journalism and reporting. Well, my thanks to Simon Adler for sharing his green and adventurous life with me today. You can check out more of Simon's work at WNYCstudios.org, and that's Radiolab. Thanks very much, Simon. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. My thanks to our producer, Alex Russo, and thank you all for listening. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the series on podcast for free at Newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app. It's been an absolute pleasure to be with all of you the last few months, and we hope to speak to you again soon. But in the meantime, do stay curious. And as we wrap season two of Down to Earth, let's take us out with David Bowie's fashion inspired by our clothing conversation today. 